Welcome to African Experts with Vicky Remote, the show that brings you African entrepreneurs, practitioners, researchers, and innovators with big ideas, solutions, and insights on issues shaping African lives across the continent. I am your producer, Brandon Bob McEwen. Said when COVID-19 was first announced here and really in the lead up to it, there had been a lot of, of you know, visible work done to reduce the risk of importation um, where we had started to see the airports tightening up security. I arrived in Ghana last year, February 25th, um, and th- there was already at that point some kind of screening form that you had to fill out to actually um, disembark and enter the, the general population. That was part of an initial set of efforts that were very clearly meant to reduce the risk of getting any virus in the country in the first place. Mm-hmm. That, when it was clear that hadn't worked um, by March 12th, when the first case were announced, we moved to a different footing, which is the initial containment. That's where there was a very quick ban on social gatherings, which you know, in hindsight, especially now what we know about aerosol spread was a very good thing. Welcome, Akwaba Kabo. I'm Vicky. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we'll be looking back at the first year of the pandemic and its impact on public health on the continent, Ghana's COVID-19 response, vaccine rollout, vaccine fears, and what you need to know today to continue to protect you and your community during the pandemic. Before we dive in, let's meet African public health expert Nanakovi Kwaki from Ghana. Let me first of all read you his very impressive bio. Be ready to be amazed. See African excellence and expertise. Nana Kofi is a doctoral candidate and research fellow in the Department of Health Policy and Management at New York University School of Global Public Health. He has spent four years as an adjunct assistant professor there. He is a health economist and policy analyst, specializing in healthcare systems and health services research with a particular focus on financing and provider payments mechanisms. He teaches courses at the undergraduate and master's level and received New York University's Future of Africa Award in the faculty category in 2018, becoming the youngest recipient of that honor. Prior to his academic career, he was a health insurance industry lobbyist with the Georgia Association of Health Plans. In that capacity, he represented the legislative interests of the seven largest health insurers in America. That is the United States of America at the House of Representatives and Senate of the state of Georgia. Nana Kofi is also a political strategist with a specialization in campaign operations and voter engagement. He previously served as a national coordinator in the state operations and political engagement team for the 2016 presidential campaign of Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yes, 
I was with her, I'm still with her. Where he designed and supervised the asset management protocols for 35 states from their headquarters in Brooklyn. He's a former chapter president and national board member of St. Anthony Hall, the oldest collegiate literary society in the United States, and was the first African to hold either position since its foundation in 1847. He's an alumnus of Columbia University and holds a BA in Neuroscience and Behavior Science, African Studies and Pre-Medical Studies. And he also holds a Master's in Public Health, Policy and Management from the Rawlings School of Public Health at Emory University. Oh my God. <laughs> Incredible. Nana Kofi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I've been following you for a year um, throughout this pandemic. You've kind of been my um, beacon. And so I'm so happy that you're here. So let's jump right into the conversation. Like I said, I've been following you on Twitter for most of the year, and you've been like, whenever I've heard news about what's going on with COVID-19, I run to your page, what's Nana saying? <laughs> I need to know. Um, but before we get into that, I think it'd be really good to hear your personal journey to public health. How did you know that this was the field for you? And for those of us across the continent, of course, not everybody know what public health is as a discipline. If you could give us just a quick uh, synopsis and then tell us your journey. Thanks, Vicky, for having me. Great pleasure to be here. Um, so public health really is a broad field of study where we look at a wide variety of things that go into promoting health, preventing disease, you know, increasing the quality of life and expanding the length of life. Um, that, is, and that sometimes is epidemiology. Sometimes that's biostatistics. Sometimes it's behavioral science, sometimes it's health policy, um, and sometimes it's really just global health um, research and global health cooperation. That's something that, you know, in the course of this pandemic, I think we've all gotten to see that public health really does mean a bit of all those things. And for the response, that's, that's kind of how everything comes together. My personal journey in public health really, um, it goes back to university where um, my time at Columbia, I went there, you know, bright-eyed African youth um, with great dreams of becoming a doctor. Um, in the course of my time there, in the course of doing pre-medical studies and stuff, I started volunteering um, in the emergency room at a hospital in um, uptown Manhattan. And I found, you know, working in that setting that the kinds of questions that were interesting to me were not really the questions of clinical care, but why some people came to the ER um, seemingly with just a flu or a cough when it was obviously not an emergency, why people were being asked for the insurance even when they came to the ER as part of the onboarding. Those are things that began to stick out to me because you began to see patterns where um, poor people, people of color, tended to seem to use that healthcare, that emergency care system in America for primary care. And you start wondering and asking questions, they begin to realize, oh, it's because they can't afford health insurance. And America, despite it being a very wealthy country, doesn't extend that. That got me thinking about what it really looked like in, you know, in, in practical terms, elsewhere in the world, in Ghana. And by the time I was, you know, heading into the phase of school where I was going to be making a choice between medical school and other options, um, it became quite clear to me that I 
I was still interested in medicine or the medical sciences, but with a more broad lens, looking at um, how the broader social, economic, and political structures dictate people's chances for health, so their life chances, and mm-hmm. how those life chances also predict their life choices. Um, that is really what got me interested. There. Graduate school really framed that interest, and um, I've been doing that ever since. Okay, um, so I'm really glad you talked about like income disparity and that how that can impact people's access to healthcare or health inequalities, because um, exactly a year ago across the world, but especially in Africa, because you know we got cases of COVID much later than other places. Um, you and I both know the kinds of predictions that were going on, the foreboding of what would happen to Africa, what would happen to African countries in light of our healthcare systems, we were told that COVID-19 would decimate Africa and African Africans. To what extent um, do you feel like this has come to pass? Well, I think those early predictions um, have largely been avoided. Um, the question that I think public health and medical scientists are engaged in or ought to be engaged in right now is the why. Um, the why comes up because we are, it's important that we can pinpoint exactly what has happened here um, so that we can know how that factors into preparedness for future pandemics. Um, one of the, you know, the, there, there have been many theories as to what we've seen on the continent, but many of those early predictions kind of were based on early data that came out of China, out of South Korea, out of Italy, where a lot of the cases that they were picking up in their hospitals, and therefore a lot of the cases that they were basing their data on where largely people who are middle-aged and older had some pre-existing conditions. And you, know, you, you saw even in that early data that there was a clear gradient where the older people got, they're more likely to have comorbidities. And the more likely they were older and had comorbidities, the more likely they were to have severe COVID and die from it. Now, if you compare the average age in Sub-Saharan Africa to the average age in, in let's say, Europe, in Nigeria, the average age is 19. In Ghana, it's 20 and a half. So you look at what that means for the majority of people, even if you have the large numbers of people, the share of people who are actually in that kind of over 60 kind of nominal at-risk group, it's fairly small. In Ghana, it's actually under 15%. So, so are, you not saying, a, yeah. are you saying that our low life expectancy, which is when you think about it, is really morbid? Like, because our population pyramid is more fatter at uh, the bottom and thins out really, really thin, um, like a place like Sierra Leone, life expectancy is 53. Are you saying that what helped us with COVID is because we don't have a lot of old people? <laughs> like, most people don't live as, as long. Well, It's not really life expectancy, and it's important to clarify, the life expectancy issue often gives this logical fallacy where what we're really picking up in life expectancy, the reason why Africa's average tends to be lower than the rest of the world is because we have a very high rate of under five mortality, and that drives down our whole average. It's not that people don't really live long or or have that, but under five mortality is just so low elsewhere in 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 the world that their average is really weighed up by people living their normal life course, whereas for us it's dragged down. But what we are looking at there is the fact that it's about kind of growth rates, population growth rates in the last 30 years, where the African continent has had a significant boom in the population growth rates. Again, because of that under five mortality question, a lot more kids are surviving to that under five mortality risk group 
because of vaccinations, because of better care. So as that has expanded in Africa in the last 25 years, that population has also expanded in Africa significantly. That's why we're so um, heavy on the bottom. It's not that people are not, that, that's really one of the, the main reason why that's the case. So it's the reason why a population ratio is significantly tilted that way and why naturally, if you look at as a share of population, a much smaller proportion of people are in that elderly group that, that are, you know, seem to have age-related out, bad outcomes. Okay, um, I think I'm starting to understand what you're saying, which is for those of you who maybe didn't follow the conversation, um, it's actually progress, right? That maybe like 20, 25 years ago, infant mortality was really terrible, right? Under the age of five, we've done better, which means that people have lived beyond. And so we have that chunk, which is why like, we have the youngest population, you know, in the, of all the continents, Africans have the youngest population, right? Okay, so, you know, you're from Ghana, I live in Ghana. And for most of this, uh, at least the early days of the pandemic, um, we, and I'm saying we as in the rest of Africa, we, as I'm not Ghanaian, I'm from Sierra Leone, we looked at Ghana's response as the uh, <laughs> the glory, like the golden fleece of African pandemic response. Can you please um, just speak a little bit to what Ghana did right um, in the beginning and um, given its own um, public health structure and its own um, health resources that perhaps made it appear as though it was doing better um, in its response in other places? Sure. Um, so right at the outset, when COVID-19 was first announced here and really in the lead up to it, there had been a lot of of you know visible work done to reduce the risk of importation um, where we had started to see the airports tightening up security i arrived in ghana last year february 25th um, and th there was already at that point some kind of screening form that you had to fill out to actually um, disembark and enter the the general population that was part of an initial set of efforts that were very clearly meant to reduce the risk of getting any virus in the country in the first place. Mm -hmm. That, when it was clear that hadn't worked um, by March 12th, when the first case were announced, we moved to a different footing, which is the initial containment. That's where there was a very quick ban on social gatherings, which, you know, in hindsight, especially now what we know about aerosol spread was a very good thing because it meant that many of those kind of conferences and office, play, and, you know, workplace settings that were obviously high risk settings because they're indoor, poorly ventilated, and predating masks as well, that those kind of were avoided de facto um, by, by virtue of what we were rolling out. Then we had shortly after that the lockdown, which was meant to re really reduce contacts between people in Accra and Kumasi, um, where we were really identifying as our hotspots. And if you put all those things together, all those things from the airport, you know, including airport closures and everything, everything happened within 14 days, the first 14 days, which was quite different from what we'd seen in other parts of the world where there had been these extended lead times, a lot of talk back and forth, the issue was being very politicized, so there wasn't that kind of a progress on it. Um, then about three weeks into Ghana's lockdown, we begin to ease the lockdown and the data first starts rolling out. And I think that's where things, you know, where like kind of the gap between reality and rhetoric um, began to show a little. 
Um, obviously, in the initial phase, the lockdown was a good idea. It was something that really bought us time. The question, though, became how do you know, you know you've had the, the lockdown has worked? How do you know that you've done all the things you're supposed to do? Have you actually beefed up your testing and tracing capacity so that you can actually do significant rapid um, tracing and contact tracing as well, testing and contact tracing? Have you boosted up PPE availability for the healthcare sector? What are you doing in terms of making sure that, um, you know, just general access and knowledge about this thing is getting out there? And there were some indicators that we were making progress there, but there were also early indicators that some of the actual objectives of the lockdown were a bit skewed from what we'd expect. And then coming out of that, we saw a shift in risk communication that kept reinforcing the idea that all was well, all was well. Even when we saw a first, a, a, a first resurgence in June, July, um, where many prominent people died at that time, um, very quickly that also you know, passed and people forgot about it again. But we weren't really changing anything in terms of behavior. We weren't really changing anything in terms of public health response. What was happening was that we, we were reducing testing quite dramatically where we began to focus on only asymptomatic cases, or sorry, symptomatic cases. And that meant that we're testing much fewer people than we were otherwise. We were missing most asymptomatic cases, but that also meant that your daily case reports were generally fairly low. And that is what kind of perpetrated the, the you know, kind of perpetuated the idea that things were okay. But come, you know, December, 2020, um, we import, we started importing new variants where the outcome risk that we're facing before from having a young population of generally asymptomatic infection, very few needing hospitalization, that was now changed by this new variant where it was clear that there was an increased risk of death and it was, it was spreading much quicker and more people were having symptoms. Very quickly, we saw the hospitals fill up. We saw the, the, the healthcare system overwhelmed. We saw testing explode in terms of private healthcare facilities because of the demand. And that all was because all the containment measures we're supposed to be rolling out were only working because we weren't dealing with a very problematic variant. And as soon as we had one that gave us the kind of outcomes you'd see in, in, in Europe, we started seeing those outcomes here as well. So those are the kind of things that have gone on here, but it's, it's without a doubt that Ghana's response has been relatively you know, excellent for the African continent or very good for, relative to many other African countries. But this is a case where better is not the same as good enough. Um, and it's not the same as enough at all when it comes to um, what, what we're supposed to be achieving here to keep people um, safe and protected. Hi, this is Franklin Bob McEwen from the African Experts Podcast. I just want to let you know that you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. And also, this show was originally broadcasted as a live stream. You can watch all previous episodes of the African Experts show on africanexpert.net. And now, let's head back to the show. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I noticed happened in the U.S. was the, I mean, you talked a little about behavior, behavior, like people changing their behaviors. In the U.S., you know, you had the situation where people politicized mask wearing. Um, and so it became this thing that, now it's not a public health decision, it's a 
political decision. Do you feel like there were certain things that happened in Ghana or elsewhere on the continent that prevented people from adhering to the measures? Like, I'm trying to hint, hint, maybe uh, talk a little bit about um, what leadership was doing in Ghana in the lead up to the election, right? Because they had the option to postpone the election, they had the option to do a lot of different things, but they carried on through November and December um, and we didn't really see the health messaging change. We didn't really see leadership doing the right things. So do you feel like they perhaps, in addition to like the entrance of the new variants that was maybe more contagious, how do you feel like leadership's behavior, and I'm not pointing fingers at any individual, but just leaders in general in Ghana were very, very visible. Their behavior helped to kind of reinforce this notion that like, oh, you know, let's all lean back because it's not really that much of a problem. Well, I think um, as you referenced in the United States, the pattern in mask wearing, for example, was heavily politicized where people were weighing out objective truth by rich, by what, you know, whether it's a D or R behind the name of the person saying it. Um, we haven't had that same, necessarily that same kind of bifurcation in just good science here, but we have had across the continent the reality that public health is inherently political play out because public health outcomes and public health imperatives can come into conflict with economic imperatives with political imperatives and we saw that around the continent we've seen that here in ghana as well um, one of the things that we've, we've really struggled with here has been risk communication getting people to understand exactly why it's important to do the things we have to do understand the reality of the risk of COVID-19, the extent of spread in Ghana, and what that would mean, A, for things like long COVID, for people who have had asymptomatic infections who then have gone on to have long-term fatigue, long-term you know, issues with cognitive impairment. We know those are risks. So we know it's not just a question of live or die. There's issues of survival of COVID-19 that are also problematic. And all those things were, were, were part of risk communication, um, were expected to part of risk communication, but we didn't really see that here. Then we end up having an, a political season, a campaign season, um, starting in around June and July, where a lot of the kind of messaging of caution and, you know, COVID is still here, begins to disappear. And we start hearing declarative statements like, you know, large political rallies don't spread COVID-19, which is the kind of stuff that, you know, defies, you know, defies reason. Because what we're talking about here is rallies that people were attending and arriving in packed buses, right. you know, being in packed spaces together, sometimes indoors, going and spending recreational time after and during those rallies in closed spaces in eateries and other places spending the evening at bars, drinking and everything together, mostly not wearing masks, and then concluding that at a time where the main agency in Ghana that does seroprevalence studies to estimate the extent of past infections was saying that we probably had about a million past infections in our current environments alone, we were saying, you know, the risk is not real, it's, or like it's not really as big as it is, numbers are going down. But in all that time numbers were going down, we're seeing all that stuff. Testing is also going down to a point where we at some point were conducting three tests per 100,000 people per day, which is 
tiny, tiny, tiny for understanding what's going on. And that is kind of what cascades into the, the you know, the, the, the kind of cues people started taking from what they were seeing, where they started seeing things like, well, if there was COVID in Ghana, we would all be dead already because look right. at what the politicians are doing. But that ignored the nuance of the fact that we're younger populations. So the, play, the way it would play out here in terms of widespread infections would be different from the West. And that obviously is exactly what happened when we imported new variants that caused the outcomes to look like Western outcomes, where suddenly people were scared again, people were aware that it was dangerous, but nothing had changed in terms of you know, us doing anything more risky because in fact, the post-election period was a party season that, that fish till, you know, dovetailed from the um, election season. But even in the early phase of that, people were still not convinced that the risk was great. Clubs were open, bars were open, um, and communication of those risks was really poor. And it wasn't until we started seeing a really significant surge in deaths that people began to really come back and say, okay, what has actually happened here during the campaign season? What, how has that influenced what's going on here? And in our case, especially, it influenced people's perception of the seriousness of the situation. It influenced their ability to appreciate their individual risk. And it really did a lot to, to kind of undermine messaging by other public health authority parties, by independent public health advocates who were saying, look, if you look at the numbers, there's no way we can know where exactly we are. We cannot say definitively things are getting better. And if you look at our behavior, everything there points to things getting worse. So all those calls for caution were, were kind of, you know, got unheeded. But um, in, in, in December and January, the reckoning came. Um, and unfortunately, that was what it took to kind of get us back on the straight and narrow. Right. Um, one of the things, actually, that I've seen you talk about a lot on your Twitter feed is the media's role in, you know, disinformation and also just keeping um, policymakers honest and holding them accountable. I've seen so many of your tweets talking about, you know, why aren't, you know, the the media houses asking these questions? Why aren't people pushing beyond? It's almost as though, and I, and I don't think this is even just the Ghana problem. In general, I feel like across the continent, we have a we have a media journalist accountability issue where a lot of times governments put out press releases or hold these press conferences and we just, the media, and I have to include myself in that because I'm a media practitioner, um, but just taking things for face value and the media kind of losing its focus on their role to push for more answers, for more concrete information. Um, so what are some of the dangers um, what are some of the dangers when the media doesn't hold government accountable, especially in context of a crisis, a public health crisis like this? I think that's a really great question. And it's something that I bring up with my students um, in every semester of my policy courses, where we spend some time talking about public health and the media. Um, I first started thinking about this topic during my undergrad years, where I took a class called Cognitive Neuroscience in the Media where we looked at how scientific findings around people's behavior, you know, those kind of catchy studies about, you know, here's this wonder drug that would make you fall in love in two days, or scientists found this part of your brain predicts what kind of person you like. We, we, we spent a lot of time in that class looking at how sensationalized a lot of the reporting on scientific facts were, and what that did to people's appreciation of those things. And it's something that really stuck with me um, in all my practice going forward. 
And it's something that, you know, in my classroom is theoretical, but COVID really made very real for me. The only other time I'd experienced anything like that was when I was lobbying in Georgia, because at that time, the Affordable Care Act was about to be rolled out after, after passage, about to be implemented. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing how coverage of it there was just so disingenuous sometimes, um, where me, the journalists understood that the question they were asking was a reactionary or exaggerates a question. For example, the Obama administration got asked questions about you know, death panels for old people with Medicaid expansion. Um, and they would, those, were, those were hyperbolic statements made by certain political actors. And those were just taken by the media and thrown at, you know, at, at legitimate, you know, you know, people making legitimate points as in things they should respond to. When you're asking, by even asking them to engage in that, you're asking them to engage with the absurd or to validate, you know, stuff that is just not true. And you're seeing a similar trend around the world when it comes to coverage of COVID. But I will use Ghana as a specific example where, as you said, I think we've had challenges with the way we communicate what's going on in terms of COVID here. Partly because, I mean, understandably, COVID is a novel public health crisis. Even public health experts are having a hard time keeping up with the science. And even those of us who are trying to keep up with the science, there's no real training for Twitter pandemic, you know, like you, that, that's really based on like what, what your own experience in social media, your own expertise or communication. That's what many public health experts and personnel around the world have relied on to do this work at this time. So we, even we don't have necessarily a training based skill set to do the kind of messaging and communication here, but we come to it knowing that we don't know that and right. making sure that we are deferring to our, our colleagues who do and presenting the information with all the caveats about uncertainties that are appropriate so that people know that this is what the science is telling us but that's what the data that we have available says but there could be other things that are worth thinking about here that's how we usually communicate it the challenge with with with, with the media space is that very often that additional expertise that gives you perspective of what you don't know and why it matters that you say you don't know it, that can be lacking sometimes. So media houses might get, you know, Ghana's, you know, yesterday, a week ago from today, um, you know, a week ago from today, Ghana's cases, I'm using a theoretical number here, was maybe 500 cases a day, today's 200 cases a day. So that means Ghana's COVID-19 situation is improving. But what if you actually, what if those numbers are half what they were before because you are testing at half the rate. What if they're half because you are testing a different population that is much less likely to be infected? What if it's, 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 it's less because you are maybe using antigen testing, which is inherently somewhat less accurate than PCR testing, and therefore you're right. finding fewer cases? There are so many other contextual factors there that could be explaining that, that if you don't look at any of them and you just report the, you know, the public health or, or, or the kind of you know, official stance on it without do, look, doing, looking at that nuanced data, you you end up missing out on on the nuance, and you end up communicating to the public relations aspect of things rather than to the public health aspect of things. And we, I think, the culmination of that was in seeing media houses in Ghana in December themselves having parties, you know, large public gatherings where. Um, you know, at a time where we knew COVID was spreading. 
which suggested that it wasn't necessarily because of it was really because of a lack of appreciation of the reality of the situation. Right, right, right. That's something that has also obviously trickled down into the public because that means when you're dealing with things like, you know, somebody writes a, a paper that's not a science, it's not a scientific study, it's not peer-reviewed, it's a it's a research letter about their preliminary findings. They publish it and say hydrogen peroxide gargling can prevent COVID-19. And you have every major media house running with it, platforming it, and spending all that time not doing the simple fact check of what does the science say? What, what, what does the study say has been peer reviewed doing that critical work to, to assess it? And you have as a result, um, this is a real example, as you know, um, you have as a result a two week period where by virtue of a lack of, where there was no real commentary on it by public health authorities. And there was also no real um, you know, clear communication or filtering from, from you know, the media to say, here's what the, the, the people are saying, but here's what the best knowledge and science says about this issue as well. And we've seen similar issues around the use of things like vitamin D and zinc, where repeatedly the evidence says those things don't, don't work, but you have people you know, in, 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 in the popular media still talking about it, still platforming people who are talking about it. And then you have ultimately the big challenge that we're facing right now with vaccines, where you're listening to African experts with Vicky Remo. We'll be right back after this music break. Solo speak. Fatoma, also known as Solo's Beat, with the song Africa. Africa is part of Solo's Beat debut album, Chuana, that was released on the 28th of February, 2021. 
Solo's beat is a Sierra Leonean artist, producer, singer, and songwriter. And now, let's head back to African Experts with Vicky Remo. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, um, I'm in conversation with doctoral fellow and public health expert, Nana Kofia Kwaki. Sorry. We're talking about the pandemic in Africa one year on, and um, we've talked about Ghana's COVID response, and now we're going to move the conversation to vaccine rollout. As you may have heard, last month, Ghana became the first country to receive the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine from Gavi, which is the Global Vaccine Alliance, under the COVAX initiative. Nana, could you please just give us a break? I know people have heard of COVAX, but not everyone is aware of kind of how we got together and how Gavi, um, or even know about Gavi. I feel like Gavi is one of those things that only you public health people know and only maybe some of us journalists know because we have to. Um, but please help help us understand uh, what COVAX is as an initiative and how Gavi has worked to make the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine available to countries like Ghana and other countries in the world. Sure. So. At the heart of the question of vaccine access um, globally um, are a couple of limitations that have to do with the structure of the pharmaceutical industry itself. Um, um, on one hand, they are profit-making um, you know, mandate. And on the other hand, they are technical limitations in terms of how much they can manufacture at any given time. No vaccine manufacturer in the last, you know, really in the last like maybe 70, 80 years has had to be rolling out a vaccine where the idea is not to get like, you know, gradual coverage about where you're supposed to, you're aiming to manufacture for pretty much the whole world at the same time, you know, concurrently. And what that has meant for a lot of um, countries is basically that they've not been able to, for, you know, in terms of their the production, is that you have a very limited global supply that, on which there's also limited practical, you know, there's a, there's a practical bottleneck of production ability. And then on the demand side, you have the additional challenge of, if, now that the demand is limited and there is a profit incentive, you can obviously see how it plays out in terms of who gets those vaccines first. So countries that can bid more will get more and they'll get them sooner. And those countries invariably are wealthier countries, um, you know, countries like the United States, um, North, in North America and in the EU, who have the bargaining power to go to pharmaceutical manufacturers and say, hey, Pfizer, hey, Moderna, hey, Johnson & Johnson, you want 50 million doses, you give us a price, we're going to negotiate, but we're going to pay. And we're going to try and outbid other countries to get ahead on your list, right? And what that creates is a situation where you have what, what has been couched as vaccine nationalism where countries are looking out for their own interests. Mm -hmm. And in that mix, in that broad pandemic, you know, my, political, in a, in a global, in a global pandemic, pandemic, which yeah. is crazy. If exactly. You think about it. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's when you, you it, that's the context in which countries like Ghana, like Sierra Leone, and many of our, our, our brothers around the African continent, that's what we're all facing. That's the market for vaccines we're facing. Obviously, mm -hmm. that access is going to be very, very difficult. So, on one hand, there was a question of, can you incentivize manufacturers to produce more than just what profits would suggest they should produce? And then can you also make it so that 
countries that can't afford these vaccines can actually get access somehow. And that's where Gavi came in with the WHO and CEPI, where they decided, let's create the solution here is not necessarily to go into vaccine manufacturing, but we're going to go for financing. We're going to finance vaccine development. We're going to finance R&D. We're going to finance distribution. We're going to finance you know, education and communication. And we're also going to finance purchasing for certain countries. But that's going to be done by pooling resources of all the countries that want to participate and using those pooled resources as the leverage, the combined leverage for bargaining for better deals at better price points from these vaccine manufacturers. So that's what COVAX really is. It's a, basically a combined bargaining tool where all these countries come together um, to raise, to pool funds to go and bargain with, but who are also then using some of the pool funds to incentivize vaccine manufacturing by encouraging these pharmaceutical companies to produce them because there's guaranteed demand on the other side. So that's kind of what COVAX does. So what it's been doing in the last couple of weeks is basically its first deliveries, where given its limitations of the fact that it's mostly poor countries, some wealthy countries are donating through official development assistance, but it's, 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 it's just not as funded as it's supposed to be. So its ambition anyway is to cover 20% of the population of most countries. So the, the, the doses that we're, get, we're starting to get are part of that initial you know, coverage that should get us to 20% through COVAX alone. But 20% mm -hmm. is a far cry off of the 70, 75% that we're gonna need for herd immunity. So COVAX is gonna help us with that 20%. And what we've been seeing around the continent in the last few weeks are those initial deliveries that are meant to get us exactly to that level. Now, the question arises, you know, how quickly can COVAX do this and how comprehensive is coverage going to be? And there's initial reason, there's initial concern that COVAX might not have the money to do, to meet those targets and that the vaccine manufacturers might still be prioritizing, you know, orders from the EU and from the US over, and even in some cases for their home countries over what we're getting. Can we talk about, um, and this is just like an honest, candid thing. I know, you know, all of us were like super excited when, you know, Mama Ngozi was elected to the WTO. Everybody was like, oh, Africa rising, as we usually do when one of us breaks a glass ceiling. Um, but experts like you and many others I've seen have called out rich countries on the way that they have held out on the patents for the COVID-19 vaccine that would make it easier for um, other countries and other um, uh, vaccine manufacturers, maybe in India, South Africa, et cetera, um, to produce cheaper vaccines that would help us reach or get at least uh, closer to um, what our need is. I know South Africa and India led a push for the WTO trade-related aspect of intellectual property agreements to be waived so that they could have access. But the same rich countries that are supposed that are funding Gavi for us to get COVAX were the same countries that blocked the W the blocks the request of the WTO. So the EU uh, and the European Union countries, the UK, USAID, all of them are okay to fund Gavi and COVAX under this guise of global health and helping us get like 20%. But why won't they give us these patents? <laughs> why won't they release these patents so that we can actually 
you know, like, so we can have, you know, like they've done for malaria medication, right? You have that, you know, two day or one day dose that's out there in the market. Most people can get it in Sierra Leone. I know for $1, you can go to the pharmacy and get like the malaria treatment. Um, that's the kind of, for something like this, that's the level we need vaccines to be where countries, I mean, maybe it's not free, but it's affordable and accessible, right? Like they had to do with HIV AIDS medication at some point, because other than that, people couldn't get access and it killed millions and millions of people before these patents were uh, were waived. Why are wealthy nations, and I know this is so much like a political, a geopolitical issue, and it's a capitalism issue, but from a public health perspective, in the context of a pandemic, why do they not understand how it's in their, all of our best interest for them to waive these patents so that we can actually produce or manufacture these um, vaccines? Well, I think um, I've said on other platforms, um, and I'll say again here, I think what we're seeing in, in the vaccine distribution and access question um, is, 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 is really, really unfortunate. Um, from an ethical standpoint, it's totally unconscionable and deeply immoral. But from a public health standpoint, too, it's also incredibly myopic. It's myopic because it makes certain assumptions about the way COVID-19 works that all the science we have so far doesn't back up. And it's immoral because it is a manufactured bottleneck. It's a manufactured crisis in the midst of a global pandemic. There is global, there is capacity around the world in, at, at institutions like Louis Pasteur in Dakar, at facilities in Egypt and in South Africa, in Africa alone, that can manufacture some of these vaccines. In the case of South Africa, that could even manufacture some of these mRNA vaccines um, at, at very, you know, if they had the, the know-how and the, the knowledge as well in, in terms of exactly what goes into making these. Um, and that continues to be blocked, or that knowledge sharing continues to be blocked at the WTO by, like you said, the USA, many countries, the EU as a block, um, Japan, um, and some other countries around the world. And it speaks to a, a, a kind of, and I think this is where I, I put on my politics hat a little, it speaks to a kind of preference almost in the global public health dynamic and global public health thinking for charity over equity, where we are sitting in Ghana, for example, and saw pretty much every foreign mission in the country, you know, doing a whole circus over the fact that 600,000 doses. This show was proudly sponsored by Adama Loves Akara. We also got them exactly. in Syria. Uh, we, we <laughs> exactly. We saw a lot of that. When these very countries, in the case of the United States, for example, is sitting on tens of million doses of doses warehouse yeah. and manufacture of AstraZeneca because they haven't approved mm -hmm. it yet, who have pre-purchased almost all the vaccine supplies coming out of Johnson & Johnson. You have mm -hmm. countries like Canada that have basically procured five times what they're going to need in terms of vaccine supplies and are still mm -hmm. taking doses from COVAX. And when the USA, for example, was deciding okay, we're going to give some of those AstraZeneca doses to countries that need it. They still gave Canada 1.2 million of, of the 4 million they gave us. Well. They just announced that they were sending they some. Gave Mexico 2.8. Yeah. Exactly. To Mexico, Mexico, I can understand. But Canada, 1.2 million. 
you, 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 you start to really wonder what the priorities are. Vaccine policies. And <laughs> exactly. And, and it, when you wonder, when you look at the question of the global risk, the, the parts of the world that have least been able to prevent, to, to do like hard lockdowns and do the very stringent public health measures and to enforce them rigidly are parts of the world like Sub-Saharan Africa, where, you know, we have had low rates of testing and where as many of the, of, of the results, when we look at, you know, excess mortality studies, when we look at seroprevalence studies, that give us a, a kind of estimate of what the real picture is, not what testing and confirmed deaths say. Everywhere on the continent, the real picture is on the level of five times, six times worse than what the raw confirmed numbers would say. So we know that those, that those environments where there's high rates of transmission and where those high rates of transmission make it more likely that we're gonna find new variants. And some of those new variants, surprise, surprise, may have the ability to bypass vaccine-acquired immunity. And that becomes more likely the longer it takes to vaccinate more of the population. So for these wealthy countries who are looking at this as a question of not wanting to set a precedent where they have to, to you know, take a hit of some sort for you know, their domestic companies who are um, pharmaceutical companies, um, what you're missing here is that you, you stand the risk of having to do this vaccine drive all over again. If we allow this thing to continue spreading and new variants continue um, um, emerging, because what we are doing here is Russian roulette. What we are doing here is, 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 is something where we are taking a gamble and saying, well, we can afford to have some amount of, or well, high transmission in some places might not be a problem. When we know that the more that happens, the more likely it is we'll have new variants. And the more new variants there are, the more likely that we'll have some of them like the UK, the one identified in the UK or the one in South Africa or in Nigeria mm -hmm. or, or Manaus or Brazil that are more infectious or that can evade some antibody um, protections or that can cause more severe illness or more likely or more increased risk of death. So that's the, that's the picture that they are not looking at fully here. And I, I personally just found it very galling to see that kind of self-congratulatory stuff when quite obviously we are not getting the kind of proper, you know, you know, equitable vaccine sharing, global solidarity that would really be meaningful in making sure that we can get the significant loads of protection on the African continent in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world um, at a time where these things can be solved literally by changing those rules of the WTO temporarily suspending them mm -hmm. and sharing the knowledge so that we can increase the number of vaccine manufacturers around the world that are producing the doses for us right now. Okay. Um, so I can't believe that the conversation has gone so quickly. <laughs> I don't even know what happened. I thought one hour was a really long time, but thank you for putting that into perspective for us. I think um, a lot of times, um, the continent, all of our countries, we find ourselves in this place where we are at the mercy of, you know, more developed and more economically advanced countries. Um, and especially during this pandemic, you saw that so all of us had to have individual responses, right? There was like each nation had a national response and it was really difficult for regional blocks like ECOWAS or 
you know, uh, the East African community and the Southern, Af like you just, we could not have a unified, I know that there's Africa CDC, but you know, we didn't hear that, oh, these group of countries are coming together to find a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, that like we are in terms of knowledge and access, we constantly find ourselves in this um, place of, in, in a disadvantaged position. And that's something that I hope um, changes because we can't continue to be in this space. Before we close, I'd just like to take a couple questions. And I know that people want to know if this vaccine is safe. So I'm going to ask that first. Um, we know that there are multiple vaccines. Would you, as a public health expert, take the vaccine? Do you have a preference? You know, what's your advice to people today? Because I know tomorrow in Sierra Leone, first of all, they're rolling out vaccines um, for people who are watching there, who are watching here in Ghana, who are watching across the continent. If they have an opportunity to take the vaccine, should they take it? And does it matter which vaccine they take? I'll say what I've said, and uh, you know, every time I've been asked this question, that the best vaccine to take is the first one you're offered. <laughs> All of these vaccines, um, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Sputnik, Sinopharm, these have all gone through a rigorous scientific process. They've gone through extensive testing. Um, they have to, to make sure two things at least are true. One, that they actually provide you meaningful protection from severe illness or death from COVID-19. And two, that they do not present you with significant health risks beyond what we'd expect in vaccine side effects you know, from general vaccines of this nature. And on both counts, all the science says yes and yes, where we know that all these vaccines have gone through the trial process. I've picked up on a lot of apprehension about the speed at which this happened, but it's important to understand that vaccine development usually doesn't have the whole world funding it at the same time. It usually has regulatory processes that are not always you know, based on how fast the science can be done, but based on how bureaucracies operate. And those things have all been condensed right now. All those inefficiencies have been eliminated. And we, found, we figured out that with existing technology and emerging science about how the vaccine looked and operated, how it was structured, how the virus looked and operated and structured, we put those things, two things together and came up with, yes, in a record time, but following all the same steps, just doing them, following all the same steps, all the same rigor, measuring all the correct outcomes, just doing it in a shorter time frame that we know that it's, th these are safe and effective. So the first one you, that you're offered is the, first one, is the, is the best one you should take. I am, I'm still waiting for um, my population segment here in Ghana <laughs> to kick in. Um, where are you, I think um, what, what like three or four? I believe I'm in group three. I think group okay. three for so the general population. And okay. um, I'm waiting for <laughs> that to come up. The rest that, of mankind. <laughs> the rest of mankind. So I'm waiting for that to come up. And I intend to get vaccinated um, as, soon, as soon as that's doable. When it was available, um, I mean, I've been haranguing my parents for days in the lead up to it. And, you know, Day one, I was at everybody's door picking everybody up, my grand aunts, grand uncles, everybody to make sure that yeah. we got the job. Yeah, that's that's the level of confidence I have in there that people I, I'm glad that people I love had the chance to get it. And it gives me great peace of mind. So the, the, there, there's nothing to be concerned about here. There are some side effects that people experience for the first 72 hours to a week, but those are normal. Mm -hmm. And most of those are 
you know, nothing beyond what you usually expect for a vaccine, maybe a fever, maybe chills, um, but medication for those things over the counter will, will help with that. Okay. Thank you so much. Before we go, I would love to leave you with a quote from the late great Wangari Mathai because it's still a pandemic and we need words of wisdom and comfort. No matter how dark the cloud, there is always a thin silver lining and that is what we must look for. The silver lining will come, if not to us, then to the next generation or to the generation after that. And maybe with that generation, the lining will no longer be thin. That was my Wangari Mathai. Thank you so much. Until next week, una tata and tanki from all of us here at African Expert. Ciao.